Colossians chapter 3, uh, verse number 17 will be the only verse that we read as a text, and, and it'll be the primary, uh, the primary thought will come from this verse, but we'll do quite a bit of background work in the first two chapters of Colossians uh, to get to verse number 17. And, and for those others in here who preach and teach God's Word, we're going to cover a lot of ground in Colossians chapter 1 and 2 on our way to chapter 3, verse, verse 17. And there's a lot of places we could park and stay for a while, and we're not, Lord willing, we're not, because we're trying to get somewhere. And so um, I'm leaving a lot behind in the first two chapters of Colossians because I want to get to this truth of chapter 3, verse 17. And so please forgive me uh, when you get the opportunity to preach, you can go back and clean the rest of the meat off of the bones that I leave behind. Um, but uh, we're going to move through and try to get back here to verse number 17. So Colossians chapter 3, uh, verse number 17, you follow along while I read. And whatsoever ye do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. Whatever you do, in word or in deed, do all of it in the name of the Lord Jesus. All right, let's pray, and then we'll get into the message. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for the opportunity to be in your house and the opportunity to gather around your word, the opportunity we've already had to sing praises to your name and to be reminded of your great love for us and the greatness of having a relationship with you. And thank you for the opportunity that we have to to expound upon and to uh, consider a portion of your word. And I pray that you would help us to communicate it clearly, uh, to apply it properly, and help us to understand it as you would have us to. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. In one of William Shakespeare's many, many writings, he said this, Good name in man and woman, dear my Lord, is the immediate jewel of their souls. Who steals my purse steals trash. T'was mine, tis his, and has been slave to thousands. But he that filches from me my good name robs me of that which not enriches him, but makes me poor indeed. I can tell you're stoked about Shakespeare on Sunday night. <laughs> okay, Solomon said it a little more succinctly than that. A good name is rather to be chosen than great riches. Much can be said about the importance of having and maintaining and keeping a good name. And having our name associated with honesty, with integrity, with good character, it should be important to us. We should have a desire to have a good name and a good reputation, a good testimony. That should be our desire. And having a good name is beneficial in just about every area of life. I can't think of, a, of an area of life or a situation in life in which having a bad testimony would, would help you or having a good testimony would hurt you. An employee who has a good name is going to do well in their job. Someone who can be trusted to do the right thing, whether or not the boss is around, is more likely to get promoted than the guy who is lazy unless the boss shows up and then they start working. An honest employee is more likely to receive promotion than a dishonest employee. Business owners understand the importance of having a good name. 
Companies spend thousands and sometimes millions of dollars trying to have their name associated with a, with a particular outcome or with a particular level of service or with a particular quality of product. They want their name, business owners want their name to be associated with quality, with value, with honesty. Business owners know that a good name will increase the overall profitability of their business, and many are willing to incur even a short-term loss in order to maintain a good name because they know the good name will eventually pay greater dividends in the long run. However, having a good name, just simply for the sake of having a good name, is not the greatest motivation for the child of God. Having a good name just for the sake of advancing one's career or increasing the profitability of one's business is not a high enough motivation for having a good name. Profit and income and career advancement and business growth are not high enough motivations for the child of God to live for. As Christians, we should desire to have a good name Because our name is associated with Christ's name. And while there are many benefits and byproducts of having a good name, the greatest motivation for having a good name is found in the fact that we bear His name. We bear the name of Christ. We're not simply living to have a good testimony in order to promote our own name. We're not living to have a good testimony in, oh, or it, just, for the, just for the hope that others will think well of us. We're striving to live with a good testimony. We're striving to have a good name in order that others might think well of our Savior. The motivation for how we live is found in living for His name. And the motivation for us maintaining a good name is found because Our name is attached to His name, and we do what we do for the sake of His name. The book of Colossians emphasizes and expounds upon the greatness of Christ's person and the work that Christ has accomplished. And Paul, especially in the first two chapters of Colossians, paints a picture of the greatness and the majesty and the splendor and the magnificence of Christ's name. The first two chapters of the book of Colossians are a textbook in the doctrine of Jesus Christ and who He is. And every every major truth about Christ can be found in the first two chapters of the book of Colossians. And these believers who were living in that first century church in the city of Colossae, there there was a new church plant there and the church was filled with first generation Christians. They hadn't been raised in a Christian home. They hadn't grown up going to church. They had A church had been established. It wasn't even established by the Apostle Paul. It was established by Epaphras. And the church had been established there. And, and these believers, they were the first ones in their family to become believers in Jesus Christ and to believe that He was more than just a good man, that He had died on the cross, but He had risen from the dead. And they had accepted Him as their Savior. And now a church has been formed in the city of Colossae and it's full of young believers eager to serve the Lord and find out how to grow in their Christian life. But these young believers in Colossae were being influenced by false teachers. False teachers had crept into the church and they attempted to lead these young believers away from the supremacy and the sufficiency found in Jesus Christ. The false teachers emphasize the philosophies of man. We can look at chapter 2 and verse number 8. 
Paul warns them, beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. So these false teachers were coming in and they were teaching and promoting their own philosophies. They were teaching and promoting the vain traditions of men. They were teaching things that were rooted in the world, the rudiments of this world, that the principles and the thoughts of this world characterized the teaching of the false prophets. They also encouraged the worship of angels and tried to enter into realms that God never intended for us to enter into in the worshiping of angels. Paul warns them about that in chapter 2, verse number 18. They taught that, that these things, apart from Christ, were the means of spiritual growth. It, it doesn't appear that these particular false teachers were teaching these things as a means of salvation, but they were coming to those who had already trusted Christ as their Savior, and they were saying, okay, now you've been saved, you've trusted Christ as your Savior, now you need to move on from Christ, and you need to begin to embark in the philosophies of our teaching, or you need to begin to embark in the worship of angels, or you need to begin to adhere to the traditions of men. If you really want to grow, then you need to, okay, it's great you trusted Christ as your Savior, now you need to come over here, and you're going to find spiritual growth over here. You found salvation in Christ, but now you're going to find spiritual growth, and you're really going to move on to the next level in your Christian life if you'll leave that behind, and you'll come and follow our teachings. These, these believers in Colossae were being influenced by false teachers who would try to get them to remove from Christ and embrace their philosophies and their, tradi excuse me, their traditions and their principles. They de-emphasized Christ and they overemphasized their own knowledge and their own experience and their own philosophy. And so Paul wrote the book of Colossians to confront the false teachers by expounding upon the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ. And Paul wants to paint these young believers a picture showing them that Jesus Christ is all that you need. He's not just all that you need for salvation, though He is. He's not just all that you need for eternal life, though He is. He is everything that you need for life and for godliness. He's everything that you need in order to grow and to mature in your Christian life. And he's writing to help these young believers understand you do not need to leave Christ behind and try to grow by learning other things apart from Christ. Look at chapter 2, verse 6 and 7. As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith as ye have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. Paul says you've received Christ, now walk with Him and walk in Him and build your life upon Him, abound in Christ, and don't allow any teacher, don't allow any, any system of belief to draw you away from a life that is built upon the supremacy and the sufficiency of the person of Jesus Christ. In the first two chapters of Colossians, Paul emphasizes the greatness of Christ's person. He shows Christ as being the image of the invisible God in chapter 1, verse number 15 who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. Christ is the image of the invisible God. Uh, Jesus said in the Gospel of John that God is a spirit. 
And they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and truth. God doesn't have a physical body. He is, he is a spirit. He doesn't have a body like you and I do. But when Jesus Christ came, it was God being given a physical body. He, was, he was, took on human form. He became a man. He was the picture of what God would look like in a human body. He was God in the flesh. He was not just a good man or a good teacher or a healer or a prophet or a good preacher. He was God made manifest manifest in a fleshly human body. And Paul is reminding them that Jesus Christ, the one you heard about being crucified, perhaps some of them had seen Him crucified. Perhaps some of them had seen Him work miracles. And that Jesus who they may have seen walking the seashores of Galilee, that Jesus who they had heard preached about and they had heard these rumors that He had risen from the dead, but maybe they weren't really sure at first, that Jesus was more than just a rabbi. He was God in the flesh. He's the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the Creator of heaven and earth. In verse 16, for by Him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth. Jesus was present and involved in creation. The Gospel of John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without without Him was not anything made that was made. Jesus was involved in creation. He, He did not begin to exist in the manger in Bethlehem. He has always been. He is from eternity with God the Father, and He's the Creator and the Sustainer of all things. Jesus is the fullness of the Godhead. Chapter 2, verse 9, For in Him, that's in Christ, in Christ dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. The, the, the person of Christ Walking in, in first century Jerusalem, he, he looked like any other man. He looked like a normal Jewish man, knew how to do carpentry work, and began a public ministry and just walking and doing the work that his father had sent him to do. Looked, looked no different other than his actions and his words and his teaching. Just in his physical appearance, he, just, he was a man in a man's body, but in that body... The fullness of God dwelt. All all the majesty and all the splendor, all the might, all the power, all the wisdom, all the holiness, every characteristic of God dwelt in Jesus Christ. And Jesus didn't just have a sampling of these characteristics, a little bit of God's holiness and a little bit of God's power and a little bit of all the attributes of God. He possessed in full capacity every attribute of deity. He was God in the flesh. And Paul emphasizes in Colossians chapters 1 and 2 the greatness of Christ's person. He's the image of the invisible God. He's the creator of heaven and earth. He's the fullness of the Godhead. But Paul not only emphasizes the greatness of the person of Christ, he also points out the greatness of our position in Christ. Look back at chapter 2 verse number 9. For in Him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Verse 10 and ye are complete in Him. <laughs> in Christ dwells all the fullness of the Godhead, and you dwell in Christ. The person of Christ is wonderful, but our position in Him, in light of who He is, is incredible. We are, we are united 
with Christ through salvation. We are in Him and He is in us and we have a wonderful supernatural union because of our faith in Jesus Christ. Listen to what Jesus said to His Father in John chapter 17, praying for us, His future believers, that they all may be one, as Thou, Father, art in Me and I in Thee, that they also may be one in us. And the glory which Thou gavest Me, the glory which God gave Jesus, Jesus said, I have given them that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and Thou in Me, that they may be made perfect in one. Jesus said, I am in the Father and My followers are in Me and I am in them and they are in the Father and we are in a wonderful, incredible, supernatural, miraculous union with Jesus Christ and God the Father. Our position is one of being in Him. He is our Father, and we are His children. We belong to Christ as His children, and He belongs to us as our Savior. We have a wonderful relationship with God the Father and with Jesus Christ through salvation. That union that we enjoy was made possible by Christ's death on the cross. He rescued us from sin and redeemed us to Himself. Chapter 1, verse 13. Who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and translated us into the kingdom of His dear Son, in whom we have redemption through His blood, even the forgiveness of sin. He, he delivered us from the power of darkness. He reached out and He rescued us from our sin. He rescued us from the power of darkness and He translated and transformed and placed us into His kingdom and he redeemed us he purchased us he made us his own through his shed blood he rescued us he redeemed us he has reconciled us to God chapter 1 verse 21 you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight we, we were at enmity with God. We were separated from God. Our sin stood between us and God. And there's no way for us to have a relationship with God so long as our sin is there. And Jesus took our sins in His body on the tree and He removed our sins and He made it possible for us to be reconciled to God. Sinful men and women are reconciled to a holy and a perfect God through the person of Jesus Christ. Unity was impossible, but Christ's death on the cross reconciled us to God. Chapter 2, verse 13, He's removed our sin from us. <coughs> you being dead in your sins, chapter 2, verse 13 and 14, you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath He quickened together with Him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to His cross. The sins that separated us from God and made a relationship with God impossible were nailed to the cross with Jesus Christ. They were taken out of the way. They were removed. He bore them in His bodies. 
His body and He took them out of the way. He, he didn't just hide them. He didn't just cover them up. He didn't sweep them under the rug. He did not in His holiness ignore them. They were removed. They're, they're gone. They, they don't exist anymore. They're not hidden somewhere where someone can go and dig them up. They have been completely obliterated. They have been eradicated. Our sins have been completely removed. Well, where'd they go? They were nailed to the cross of Christ. And the the handwriting of ordinances that was against us was blotted out. The handwriting of ordinances, if if we study that out, we would find the handwriting of the ordinances, it it literally speaks of a citation for every time that we have sinned. You know what a citation is. Okay, I do too. Imagine this. Every time you sin against God, citation, date, time, nature of the offense, written down, recorded, filed away, written down, recorded, filed away. The handwriting of the ordinance, it's the handwriting of every time we've broken God's law. Verse 14 says, he blotted it out. Every handwriting, every record of every sin that we've committed, it's been blotted out. It's been erased. It's, it's not there anymore. It's there, the ev- there's not enough evidence. If we were to stand trial for being a sinner, we couldn't be convicted. Amen. Amen. Well, but I've sinned. Yeah, me too. But it's gone. No, that's, that's not a reason to be flippant. That's not a reason to be loose. That's not a reason to take license and just do whatever we want and to, and to indulge the flesh. That's a reason to honor and uplift and, and adore our wonderful Savior. Every handwriting of ordinance, that every time that we've broken God's law, it's as if it's been recorded and then God took that record and He erased every single one. Amen. And that page is blank. And no one can find the evidence to convict us of sin. Well, that's not a reality right now, I know. But our position in Christ, that's where we stand. Our standing before God is innocent, not guilty, not enough evidence to convict. That's our standing in Christ. Paul's helping us to see the greatness of our position in Christ as believers. Christ has rescued us from sin. Christ has redeemed us to Himself. He has reconciled us to God. He's removed our sin from us and we stand complete in Christ. We're not waiting to be reconciled to God. We are reconciled to God. We're not waiting to be forgiven. We are forgiven. We're not waiting to be the sons and daughters of God. We are currently right now the children of God. And our standing before God is that we have been redeemed. We've been reconciled and we're united with Christ and God through the death of Christ on the cross. So in chapters 1 and 2, Paul exalts and magnifies Christ and shows us the greatness of Christ's name. He expounds on how greatly we have benefited from the name and the person of Jesus Christ. And then in chapter 3, Paul transitions to the practical application that should result from our relationship and our union with Christ. When we enter into that union with Christ and we are reconciled to God and we are made a new creature and our sins are forgiven and we understand who we are in Christ, it ought to change our behavior, and it ought to change some things in our life. And Paul challenges us 
to live our life, now that we have been born again, now that we have been saved, to live our life in the name of the Lord Jesus. And in chapters, primarily chapter 3, in the beginning of chapter 4, Paul calls believers to Christ-centered living in every area of life. Christ-centeredness is not something reserved just for church services. And honoring the name of Christ is not something that should be limited to a few moments spent kneeling in worship or a few songs that are sung during the congregational singing. Though everything that we do in the Lord's house as the Lord's people on the Lord's day, everything that we do on this day should honor the Lord. That's absolutely true. This is only, the time that we spend here is only a small part of, our, of a life that honors the name of the Lord Jesus. Yes, we should honor the Lord. Yes, we should have Christ-centered singing. And yes, we should have Christ-centered preaching. And yes, we should do everything that we do at the Lord's house to honor the Lord's name. But this is only a small part of our life's responsibility. Paul says in verse number 17, Whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Paul's shown us the greatness of Christ's name and what faith in His name has done for us. Now he calls us to live our life for His name. The term word and deed emphasizes every area of the Christian life. Everything we say and everything we do ought to be done in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is an all-inclusive statement. One commentator said, there are few exhortations in the New Testament which are as comprehensive as this. To do something in someone's name means that you operate under their authority. You represent them. Everything that you do is a reflection of the one whose name you bear. Everything that you do is a reflection of the one whose name you bear. And everything that we say and everything that we do should show that we bear the name of Christ. And everything we say and everything we do ought to be done so that we could do it in His name. That is challenging. For me at least. That's a very challenging truth. Paul sets the bar high. Every word, every action done in His name. When I think back to the week that has been, I don't think I met the standard in every word and in every deed. Every word and every action should be filtered through this criteria. Can I do this in Jesus' name? Does this word or does this action properly represent and honor the name of Christ? It's a tall order. It's a high command that Paul gives us to strive for. And in chapters 3 and 4, Paul applies this truth to all of our human relationships. We won't go through and read every one of them, but in chapter 3, verses 5 through 14, Paul applies this truth to our relationships with brothers and sisters in Christ and our actions towards one another and the types of actions that should be done in His name. He tells us to put on uh, bowels of mercies, kindness, humility of mind, meekness, long-suffering. Those are the type of actions that should be done in His name. Our relationships and interactions with one another at church 
ought to bear and honor the name of Christ. Our relationships and interactions with one another in our home ought to bear and honor the name of Christ. The relationship that we have with our spouse, the relationships that parents have with their children and children have with their parents, the interaction between parents and children ought to honor and exalt and adore the name of Christ. Our relationships and interactions on the job ought to honor and bear the name of Christ. Every interaction and every relationship and every situation that we are in, we are called upon to bear the name of Christ and to do those actions, to live our life for His name. There's no doubt that Paul sets the bar very high in our Christian life. The truth challenges us to filter every word and every action. Can I do this in the name of the Lord? However... When we rise to the challenge, when we embrace and strive to meet the challenge, the challenging truth becomes a comforting truth. When we strive to meet the challenge, the challenge of this truth becomes a comforting truth. Paul reminds us that every task and every responsibility, every role that we fill takes on new meaning and new significance because each one is an opportunity to honor and exalt the precious name of our Savior. Every task, not just the ones we do at church, not just the ones directly related to our life and ministry at church, but every task in our life is an opportunity to exalt and honor the name of our Savior. Here's the reality of life that I probably don't have to remind you of. (laughs) The grind can wear on us. The grind of daily life, work, family, bills, health, church ministry, relationship challenges, sickness in the family, difficulties that come, and they never just come one at a time. The grind can wear on us. The responsibilities and the pressures of life can weigh heavy on us. Sometimes the disappointments and failures of life can cause us to become discouraged and disillusioned. And it's possible in some seasons of life to begin to think, what's the point of all of this? What am I striving for here? What difference does it make? I'm doing this day in and day out and I feel like I'm just trudging through one step at a time. I feel like maybe I'm just spinning my wheels and I'm not getting anywhere and I'm not accomplishing anything and I don't know if it's doing any good. During certain seasons of life, it can be difficult to find the motivation to continue putting one foot in front of the other. The truth of Colossians 3.17 provides great motivation to continue doing whatever God has placed in front of us. It gives motivation to continue walking on the path on which God has placed us. Here's the truth we need to keep in mind that every task, every task, every responsibility, as long as it's not sinful, we throw that phrase in there, every task and responsibility, as long as it is not in violation of the clear teaching of God's Word, every task or responsibility is an opportunity to honor the great name of our Savior. You and I bear the name of Christ in every role that we fill. 
You're not just an employee. You're a Christian employee. You're not just a businessman or a businesswoman. You are a Christian businessman. You're not just a plumber or a police officer. You are a Christian plumber or a Christian police officer or a Christian carpenter. You're not just a husband. You are a Christian husband. You're not just a wife or a mother. You are a Christian wife. You are a Christian mother. You're not just a teenager. You are a Christian teenager. And the name of Christ being attached to the role of your life provides significance and it provides meaning to every role that you have the privilege of fulfilling. You may fill different roles in your life. You may wear many different hats and you may have different responsibilities in your life. But whatever they are and however various they may be, they all have this one thing in common. In each of those roles, you as a believer bear the name of Christ. You, you, you bear His name, each role, each responsibility, each task, all the way down to the specific words that come out of our mouth. Everyone is a fresh and a new opportunity to bear the name of Christ with excellence. Every, every task that we fulfill, every role that we fill, everything that we endeavor to do is a fresh and a new opportunity to bear the name of Christ with excellence. That truth provides significance to every responsibility set before us. Each task that we fulfill, each responsibility is greater than the task itself or that which directly results from the task. Each task is an opportunity to bear Christ's name. Our relationships and roles within the home provide opportunity to bear and honor the name of the Lord Jesus. Caring for children can be frustrating. <laughs> So I've heard. <laughs> Caring for young children can be frustrating. It can seem endless. At times you may feel like it's making no difference at all. But it's significant not just because of the role a mother or a father plays in caring for their children. It's significant because we can honor the Lord. We can honor the name of the Lord by doing that role in His name. Being a dad trying to find quality time to spend with your children in the midst of the busyness of the schedule and the challenges of life and their schedule and your schedule and the shortness of the days. Finding the time to spend with them can be frustrating and you feel like it's never enough. But it's significant because we bear the name of Christ in trying to be the parents that we need to be. Children and teenagers obeying with a good attitude. And being in the home and growing into an adult but not quite being there yet and feeling the desire for independence and feeling the desire to be your own person yet still living, biblically living under the authority of your parents. It can be frustrating to figure out how that all looks and you want to be out on your own and you want to do your own thing and you want to make your own decisions but you're still under your parents' authority. You have to realize that as a young person, as a teenager, as a child, you, you, you don't just obey your parents in order to stay out of trouble, although it's nice when you do. You obey your parents because by obeying your parents, you honor the name of the Lord. You exalt and you bear His name well 
when you obey your parents with a good attitude, your relationships in the home, they're not, you're not just existing under the same roof with these other individuals just to try to survive and just to try to make it to the next day. God has put our families together so that we can bear His name as a family. So that we can bear His name as husband and wife and father and mother and children and parents. We have opportunity to bear His name in those roles that we fill. We have opportunity to bear His name in our workplace. It's about so much more than just earning a paycheck. Though we need the paycheck. And sometimes we wish it were more. And sometimes we can do things to make it more. We can better ourselves and we can develop skills and we can make a move and we can pray for promotion. And there's nothing wrong with all of those things in and of themselves. If we're going to do our job, we might as well do it well. We might as well do it with excellence. And if we do it with excellence and we get paid well for it, then that's great. But it's about so much more than just earning a paycheck. It's about the opportunity to honor and exalt the name of the Lord by our work ethic, by our integrity, by the way that we conduct ourselves and the way that we interact. Our relationships and our roles at church provide opportunity to honor the name of the Lord. You understand this, and it was mentioned this morning. There are not certain places in church, there are not certain places of service in the church that provide more opportunity to honor the name of the Lord than others. Well, that person there, they have that position, so they have, well, they have a really good opportunity to honor the name of the Lord. Well, I'm just doing this over here. No, every role has opportunity to honor the name of the Lord in the life and the service of a church. Sitting on the platform or sitting in the pew. Leading the music or singing along in the congregation. Leading a ministry or cleaning up after everyone's gone. Teaching an adult class or changing diapers in the nursery. Whatever the role is that you fulfill, every role is an opportunity to exalt and honor the name of the Lord. Whatever role we have to fulfill in this life and in the ministry that God's given us, Whatever role we fulfill is opportunity to bear His name. Make no mistake about it. His name is great. His name is high. His name is holy. His name is significant. When the band of soldiers came to arrest Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, and they came and Jesus said, Who seek ye? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said, I am. And they they went backwards and fell down on the ground. At the mention of His name... Peter was there ready to draw the sword and take him on. All Jesus did was say his name and they fell down before just the mention of his great and mighty name. One day, all of creation is going to bow the knee to his name. God's highly exalted him. God's given Christ a name which is above every name. And at the name of Jesus, every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He has a great name. He has a mighty name. He has a high and a holy and exalted name. And when you trusted Him as your Savior, He gave it to you. His name was given to you and to me when we trusted Christ as our Savior. And now, in everything that we do, we do those things bearing His name. No task, no role, no responsibility is insignificant when we are able to bear the name of Christ in and through it. Don't don't let the, the challenges and the grind of life rob you of the significance that you get to bear Christ's name in the responsibilities that you feel. Don't let the the challenges that you face rob you of the significance of bearing the name of Christ. Remember that everything you do in this place 
And in whatever, wherever you go when you're not here, and whatever you do, provided it's not sinful, whatever you do in this life is opportunity to bear His name and find significance and find meaning and find reason to continue and find encouragement in the reality that we bear and we honor and exalt the name of our Savior in everything that we do. Let's stand together with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. We'll have a time of invitation if the Lord spoke into your heart and give you opportunity to speak to Him. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the greatness of Your name and thank You for all that we have because of who You are and who we are in You. And Lord, I pray that we would remember that everything we do, we bear Your name and that we would be challenged by that reality, but we would also be comforted by it and that we would find significance and that we would find meaning in all the tasks and the roles that you've given us to fulfill, that we would strive to honor you in each of them. In Jesus' name, amen.